Well, I was curious, um, how many people, by show of hands, right, we always say this, by show of hands, by show of hands, how many people have ever been stranded in an airport? Oh, good, okay. Well, that means you understand a little bit of where I'm going to be going. Well, for me, I'm a control, I love to be in control. Uh, it doesn't mean I necessarily have to be in charge, or that I'm a controlling person, I hope. Um, but what it does mean is that I like plan, I like order, I like things being where they're supposed to be, and feeling as though all of my world around me is ordered in this nice little, you know, situated environment, so I feel safe, I feel comfortable, I feel in control. Well, uh, for example, my, my wife Allie and I, we even plan our vacations down to the T. You know, when you go visit family that live in the same city from both halves, you know, you have to plan everything very detailed, make sure everybody has the same amount of time. Well, as we were on vacation a couple of Thanksgivings ago, I had to leave about a week early um, to come back and, and begin working on some things at the church. And they dropped me off at the airport, and I knew that the flight was already going to be a little jumpy just because they, they said a huge snowstorm was working its way through. So I get on the plane, everything's going okay, but then snow starts coming down, so a delay happens, and then another delay and it wouldn't have worried me, except I'm also very cheap. I'm not only controlling, but I'm cheap. So this is just, you know, if you have this first impression of me, it may not be a very good one. Um, but we're, I'm sitting in the airport, and I, or the, air, the, uh, the airplane, and I know I have to make a connection flight in Atlanta. Um, and I have about a two-hour window, so I'm not getting too nervous yet. I'm sitting there about 45 minutes on the tarmac. I'm thinking, oh, man. And it's already evening. I'm not sure if there's another connecting flight from Atlanta to Kansas City. Well, we get in the air, and I start to calm down just a little bit. Well, as we get to Atlanta, you know, I'm looking at my watch, uh, or my iPhone, let's be real. Um, I'm looking at my phone, and we're over Atlanta, just circling Atlanta Airport. And it was one of the freakiest things, because I'm looking out the window, and I see all these other planes just going in this huge circle. And slowly, you know, the time begins ticking away. And they say over the intercom, yeah, we don't have bad weather in Atlanta, but everybody else does everywhere else. So it's delaying the planes from taking off, which is delaying us from landing. Some of you have connecting flights. We can't promise you'll make it. And I'm thinking, ugh, it's 10 p.m. I'm tired. I've got meetings in the morning. Um, some of you, like you who have raised your hand, may know the same feeling. And so I begin to get anxious, you know. My control is slowly sipping, sleep, slipping from my fingers, and I'm trying to figure out how I can bring all my ducks and put them back in, the, in a row, and I can't figure it out. So we land, and I make a buddy with the guy next to me, and we end up sprinting to the gate at case, to, to go to KC. We're sprinting, and we get there, and the door shut. And some of you have probably experienced this, where you go, and you can see the plane out on the tarmac. with It's still connected. And I think, you know, I ask, I say, well, can't you guys open the door? We just shut it three minutes ago. Well, then open the door. It's no big deal, right? It's three minutes ago. And they said, well, it's protocol. We can't open the door once we've shut it. So my anxiety turns to anger, you know? And I'm just really setting a great example for everyone here. But I, I get angry, and so I go to the counter, and I say, I don't understand. The plane's out on the tarmac. Uh, and, and what happens when we get angry is we feel like somebody's taken control from us, right? They've overstepped their boundaries, that this is rightfully my land. So... I began having this discussion, and they just said, we can't do anything, and since it was snow, it was an act of God, so you're just going to have to figure out what you're going to do. <laughs> oh, okay, this is helpful. Thank you for being a very helpful desk. Um, 
Well, it turns out that I did get a hotel that night, and I just became apathetic at that point. And when all hope is lost of ever regaining control, what do we sometimes turn to? Apathy. We just stop caring. And I stay the night at the hotel. I get to Kansas City finally about 1 or 2 p.m. the next day. I'd missed a whole slew of meetings. The whole week was kind of crashed because of this delay in plane. But, but some of you understand that. And some of you actually might be in one of those zones this morning. You may be anxious. You feel like your life is out of control. Some of you may be angry. You feel like somebody's taken something from you or overstepped their bounds and you don't feel control any longer because somebody's tried to take control. Some of you may be apathetic this morning. Some of you may be circling through all three as you're sitting in the service this morning. The thing is, our whole lives, they feel as though they're a battle, a battle for control. At least that's what my wife tells me. Um, and, and, and we see this battle for control in our relationships with one another. And one of, the, one of my favorite uh, quotes actually comes from George in Seinfeld. And let's, let's watch what he has to say about this battle for control. All right, I'm sorry. What about her? What, you think I'm going to repeat the whole thing, Lou? I know. You told me you like her. Everything's going good. No, everything's not going good. I'm very uncomfortable. I have no power. I mean, why should she have the upper hand? Once in my life, I would like the upper hand. I have no hand. No hand at all. She has the hand. I have no hand. <laughs> and some of us, right, we feel like that. We just want the upper hand. We have no hand at all. We feel like our lives are out of control. And we get angry like George. And we see this, you know, whether it's between our kids as they're wrestling for control over one another. Who's going to babysit the other, you know, in the night you go out for a date? Or you see this between parents and children. You see this, I see it between my pets and me. I try to take my dog for a walk and she tries to walk me. You know, it's, it's all about who's in control. For George, it was between a relationship with the opposite sex, whether it be our wife or our girlfriend or our boyfriend or our husband. We feel the same wrestling for, for control in our workspaces. We feel it even amongst our friends. And we definitely feel it in politics, although some of us may feel apathetic in that regard. We're all battling for control, and we see it all around us. But we don't only see it around us, we feel it within, right? As we have this battling within our hearts, this dualism going on about these two controlling ideals. And the first is, we all actually want to be led. Whether we'd like to admit it or not, if you look at your life, we all want to be led. At least by someone who wants our good and shows us how to get our good. I mean, we so easily become followers of someone else. The new shoes become everyone's shoes because Bono wore them. Or you look at Twitter. I mean, who has the most followers, right? We want to get those tidbits of information that inspire us throughout the rest of our day. We're following on every word and phrase that that person may put out. But this contrasting element and this internal paradox that we have is that we also want to be in control. We want to be the leaders, and we see this, you know, and how quickly we fight against authority. You know, just think, the last time someone told you to do something rather than asking you to do it. You know that feeling, like the blood rushes to your face, your whole body kind of gets warm, your back gets a little stiff, and you just say, excuse me, what did you just say? We don't like being told what to do. We, we want to be the ones in control. So as we wrestle with this internal paradox and we see this wrestling for control throughout the rest of our world, ultimately we're all wondering, as we're looking at all the powers that be, who's ultimately in control? Who's really at the top 
of the food chain. And when we come to Matthew 28, Jesus shows us his cards. He lays it all out on the table for us. And so we're going to ask three questions. Three questions this morning. What does Jesus claim? What gives him the right? And what are my options? What does Jesus claim? What gives him the right? And what are my options? Now, the first question we're going to ask is, what does Jesus claim? Whoops, really jumped there. There we go. What does Jesus claim? And if you have one of the community Bibles that we have back there, we're going to be looking at Matthew 28. That's at page 542. That might help some of you uh, as you're navigating sometimes the difficult pages of Scripture uh, if you're new to the Bible. It's on page 542 there, but we're going to be in Matthew 28. And in verse 18, Jesus makes his claim. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Imagine what it must have been like to hear those words for the first time. All authority has been given to me. Yeah, some believed, as we read, some doubted. And if we look earlier, just a few verses, as we heard read by Sherry, some were adamantly against this idea. Opposed, I mean, worked at their best to hide it. And really, their world wasn't that much different than our own. I mean, you could look at the different struggles for authority, for power, for control. It showed up in the Jewish zealot, right, who's trying to throw off the Roman control of the Roman Empire that had placed their power upon the nation of Israel. You could look at the Pharisee who's fighting for religious control at the Temple Mount. You also can find it in the Roman soldier who places authority over the slave girl. And even more so, we see it twice in Scripture, the disciples that are surrounding Jesus are even battling for control. They're continually fighting who's going to be the greatest among Jesus. Who's going to be at his right? Who's going to be at his left? Even within this movement. You see, our world has been the same ever since this cataclysmic fall at the very beginning. You see, at the very beginning, God designed us with some authority. Look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. It says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion, this is language of control and authority, over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see, we were designed by God to be princes and princesses, but never, ever the king. Never the king. We were given some authority, but never all authority. And if we look throughout our world, one of the biggest problems is misplaced authority. Misplaced authority. And in our postmodern world and in our American culture, we kind of shove against authority structures in general. But the problem is, is we aren't wise enough, we're not strong enough, we're not good enough, we're not worthy enough to have all authority. We weren't designed that way. And we may even say, excuse me, what did you just say? But that's the truth of our design. Ever since the beginning, we were created to rule under another, not over all. And when we wanted it all, when Adam and Eve took that bite to be like God, that they might be greater or as great as God, to have all authority, we no longer could have dominion alongside of one another, but we wanted to dominate one another. 
We wanted to prove that we are the best, that we are in control. And see, when we see this about ourselves, and we look at the world around us, we can't help then, if we're going to understand Jesus as who he was in history, we can't help but understand him as king. Unless he's come to reorder the world, to exercise his authority as king for our good, then he is not true to his historical existence. But if that is true, if that's the claim that Jesus has made, what gives him the right to make this sort of claim? I mean, think about what, have go- what must have been going on in their minds when they hear this. This 11 disciples around Jesus when he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Some probably thought back to those ancient promises, those promises that had been given to the nation of Israel for years and years. I mean, promises that were so outrageous that even Israel began to think of them more as rumors than as truth. Now, as a community of faith here, Christ community, we've been journeying through what we've called Open Here. And it's our desire to read a chapter of the Bible every day, seeing that as our daily nourishment as we seek to live this life as we are designed to live. And we've seen, as we've been reading through the story of Scripture, we've seen a lot of really inadequate rulers, right? We've seen these warlords, these charismatic rulers named judges that just led out of their passions rather than piety, led out of their own selfish desires rather than God's ways, and it led to the destruction even in the midst of deliverance. Well, this morning, in our historical line of scripture, as we're reading together as a community, and as some of you are now hearing for the first time, we've we've finally gotten to the place in the nation of Israel's history where she has a good king. Not just a judge, but a good king. And he's leading, leading the nation in the right direction. Yeah, he may be ruler, but he also needs someone to rule over him, and he knows this. So early on in King David's life, God makes an incredible promise to this king. He says there will be an everlasting king that's going to come through you. That seems outrageous. Even David is shocked by this statement. And if you look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, and this is in page 167 of your common or community Bibles. Well, that even helps me as I'm looking up here. Page 167, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 through 13. Nathan, he speaks to David when he says, halfway down, verse 11, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And if you jump down to verse 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Never ending. Forever going on. Always, always, always from this point. And some had forgotten about this promise. Until Jesus says these words, All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. And if we look at the beginning of this gospel that was read for us, we read Matthew 28. at at our time of scripture reading, if you look back to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, Matthew remembers this promise. Matthew remembers this promise. 
And he says, look at this at the very beginning. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, who? The son of David. Now, every time, when, when, in, in ancient times, when they would bring up genealogies, it wasn't just to say, hey, look, this is my grandpa. You know, this is my great-great-grandpa. This was his name. And we still don't do that today, right? When we, when we mention genealogies, it's a statement of legitimizing where we stand in society. And this is the same way here. It's a statement of authority. He is in the line of David, this great king whom the promise was made. And if you read throughout the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, one commentator says, Matthew makes it exceedingly plain that whether directly or indirectly, the issue of authority underlies all the controversies Jesus has with the religious leaders and that it is therefore pivotal to his entire conflict with him. Jesus isn't just a really cool dude, folks. He's not someone who had some really great things to say and then he died and that was it. That's not the story of Christ. That's not the historical representative that we have with the witnesses that have been given. Rather, Jesus was born to be king. He existed before he was born to reign here on this earth forever. I mean, we could look at other places throughout Scripture where there are these promises and even these foreshadowings of Jesus coming. But let's return to our story. So some of them, they not only look back to these ancient promises... But some of them, they look just to the events of the past few weeks before Jesus' crucifixion, before his resurrection. Think about it. Before he is crucified, he's healing people. He's giving sight to the blind. He's helping the lame to walk. Not just helping them, but making them walk by the power of his authority. He's speaking truth into life. He's bringing community together around love and compassion and justice. And then instead of running from death, He walks towards it to the point that he hands over his life. It was not taken from him, but he hands over his life to be whipped, to be beaten in the most excruciating forms, then to be crucified, the most excruciating form of death imaginable, and dies, and for three days is buried in a tomb. And then in Matthew 28, we see on that third day what happens. These two women, Mary and Mary, they come to the tomb. An earthquake happens, an angel appears, the soldiers pass out because they're scared to death. And then the women, they talk to the angel and he says, Jesus isn't here, he's alive. And so they say, he said, they say, go back to the disciples and tell them. So they begin to run back and Jesus stops them and says, greetings. And they fall at his feet. It says they're filled with fear and joy because this is way outside of the scope of what they could have imagined. And they touch his feet. This isn't an idea of Jesus. This is a physical bodily resurrection. And they worship him. And then they go to the disciples. When you hear that, you have to ask yourself, I mean, is there someone else that's worth following? I mean, Jesus, he's got these great qualifications. He's got expertise in human life and human flourishing. And he's got an amazing track record. Nobody could honestly do a good smear campaign on Christ. I mean, they could try. People do false smear campaigns on people all the time. But there'd be no legitimacy in it. I mean, there's no greater resume than the line that says, oh, I've conquered death. (laughs) No one else can put that on their resume, can they? And he's the only king who's defeated death. And only a king who has defeated death has ever the right to rule your life. Okay, so what's death got to do with authority, right? What's this big deal with death and being given all authority? 
Because death, and we all know this, is the most ultimate foe we ever face. We're all afraid of death. You know, there's the common, the common saying, there are two things that are certain in life. Death and taxes, right? And death scares us all to death. I, I was just, uh, last week, I was, um, I got a call from a friend of mine. I, I tried to reach out, out to him a couple of times and just been too busy over the past couple of months to make any contact. And then I get a call from him out of nowhere. And he says, we need to talk. And I said, what's going on? He says, my dad's about to die. So we went and had a cup of coffee. I mean, he's an exceptional cook, and he's got this wonderful heart, a great work ethic, but becomes so busy in his life that work becomes the sum total of his existence. And these questions of existence and how to follow God just go to the back of his mind and the busyness of life. This is what we do as people. And I said, why did you want to meet, Matt? After all these months, why now? And he said, when my dad was about to die, I saw fear in his eyes. Something that shook me up inside. Because I had no idea what was on the other side. And it brought all those old questions that I pushed to the back of my mind back to the forefront. And I need to talk with you about it. You see, death, it shakes us out of our comfort. Because when we're, when we're comfortable, we just go in the normal mode of things. But when death happens, which will happen to us all, it's determined to once to every man to die. This is the one, one thing, like I said, with taxes that we can be sure of. It scares us and it allows us to be broken free from our normal rhythms to ask meaningful questions that need answers. Those of you who are struggling with illness, those of you who have friends who are struggling with illness, those of you who have lost loved ones, or those of you who are getting older, you know this more than the rest of us. Sin and brokenness is slowly breaking us apart inside and all around. And when I weigh the odds, I want to be on the side of the guy who's defeated death. If he really did come back from the dead, if he really did defeat death's grip and overcame the impossible, isn't that someone you would bow before? So we have to ask the question, what are my options? What are my options? Well, just like we read this morning, there are various options. And I want to begin with one, even though it's not in order of the text from Matthew 28. Some of you may find yourself in a place of reasonable doubt. Reasonable doubt. It says in, this, in Matthew 28, and some doubted, even after seeing the resurrected Christ. Now, this is really an inevitable option in one degree because it's a good rule of thumb that dead people stay dead, right? I mean, that's not something we hear about on a regular basis. Um, and so it's, it's kind of common that we'll have some sort of doubt about this message that Jesus has conquered death, that he rose from the grave. Even those who, who knew Jesus best wrestled through this, who walked in and out with him on a daily basis. And we can see this in their testimonies. If we look in another gospel, Luke 24, verse 11, after being confronted with the resurrected Jesus, they wrestle and some still do not believe. In Mark 16, we see the same occurrence. Even one of those who are closest to Jesus, he gets this unfortunate adjective linked to his name, Doubting Thomas, right? We all know him, Doubting Thomas. And in John 20, he is so convinced that he says, I will not believe unless I can touch the very wounds of Jesus. 
which was kind of portrayed for us in that video at the very beginning. And what happens is Jesus shows himself to Thomas, and he touches the wounds and transforms his life and has been called the Apostle to India. I mean, he's, it transforms his life. If you look in church history, there are traditions of how that just transformed Thomas, and he dies the most gruesome of death for Christ because he finally came to the point of belief, and it transformed him. Some of the greatest doubters become those of the strongest faith. And I can sympathize with this. Um, my wife knows this about me. I can be a devil's advocate, which sounds kind of weird for a pastor to be a devil's advocate when you think of the word, with the wording of that. But I push into arguments. I want to know why it's true. I want to know why you said what you said, how that really it communicates truth, or you're, you're saying something different than where you stand. Prove it to me, unless you're wrong. But there comes a point, though, no matter how much we push in, that the curiosity and the question stops and we make a decision. You can either choose to believe the historical evidence we have before us or choose not to believe. You can choose to believe or say not now. You can choose to believe or say I can't. But regardless, there are two options out of doubt. Willful belief and willful disbelief. It's a matter of the will, the heart. It's a choice that we all make. And we're going to talk about both of those here in just a minute. But first, I need to say something about doubt. Because really, doubt has got a bad rap so many times. Doubt is not necessarily a bad thing. Doubt is actually necessary for faith. You know, being out of touch with our doubts is an indication that we may very well be out of touch with the gift of faith. And what do I mean by that? And Tim Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, if you have questions, if you're wrestling, I just recommend this resource. It's a beautiful and very thoughtful, uh, working through some of our major questions in our culture. The reason for God, belief in an age of skepticism. And I, I'll have it up here afterwards if you'd like to check it out, um, or if you want it, quite frankly. Um, you can have it. Uh, first come, first serve, though. I've only got one. Well, Tim, in his book, he says this. A faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. So listen to your doubts. Lean into your doubts. Learn from your doubts. But let them push you towards clarity and truth. Another theologian, Frederick Buechner, he says, doubts, I love this, are like ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and moving. The question that we come to, though, is what is it moving you toward? Where are your doubts moving you toward? We all start with doubt, but they can lead to disbelief or belief. But the question then comes, how do we know we've gone from curiosity to a conscious decision, right? To disbelieve. And we have to make a distinction between doubt and disbelief and skepticism. Doubt isn't skepticism. The decision to doubt everything deliberately as a matter of principle. That's skepticism, not doubt. Nor is doubt unbelief. Unbelief is the decision not to have faith in God. So in other words, doubt is curiosity about the facts. It is not a deliberate choice to ignore or reject them. And right after Jesus' resurrection, we see two particular people, or kinds of people in general, 
who straight up refuse to believe what Christ has actually done and risen from the grave. We first see the chief priests, right? What would it have cost them to believe that Jesus actually had risen from the grave? It would have cost them control, and it would have also cost their reputation. They were the people who helped gear up the rest of Jerusalem to crucify Christ. But what if he rose from the grave? What if he really did rise and he is the king that all the earth is longing for? And they lose faith, and, or lose face, and they lose control. The chief priests weighed the two options, and they chose control, power, and reputation. We also see the soldiers. They're kind of in a finagling spot as well. I mean, they, they, for them, it would have cost them their lives to pass out on post Regardless of what may have happened, they would have been killed if this would have come to light. So their lives are on the line, and the chief priests throw in a little extra into the pot. They say, we'll give you a little money to sweeten the pot. So for them, it was their lives and riches over against believing that Christ was crucified and raised from the dead. And they chose to live a life of deceit, which is really not living at all. You see, doubt is different than a straight-up decision to disbelieve. So we have to ask that question, what motivates you to reject faith? What's motivating you to willfully disbelieve? For many of us, it's our battle for control, isn't it? I mean, that ancient battle that we've been talking about that's always popping up in our lives. Okay, let's say the resurrection might be true. Let's just not even say it is true. Let's say it might be true, which I do believe it is true, but let's say it might be true. And I mean, it's at least possible, right? But if it is, you know and I know that your life would have to change. And you'd rather keep control than to give control to the one who's risen from the dead. So ask yourself, do you even want to believe? Having beliefs means we live by them. This is what the Anglo-Saxon word comes from. Belief means by life, what we think we show by our lives. And of course, we have this wonderful comedian who's brutally honest for us and what he does with his beliefs. So let's watch. I have a lot of beliefs, and I live by none of them. That's just the way I am. They're just my beliefs. I just like believing them. I like that part. They're my little believies. They make me feel good about who I am. But if they get in the way of a thing I want... What do you think he says? If they get in the way of the thing I want, I just do whatever I want. <laughs> he just says it straight up. And he's, he's a little too honest for us, isn't he? Because we can find a lot of... Recon you know, a lot of we can see ourselves in that statement. As much as we hate it, we see ourselves in that statement. And it's just, for us, we may even think it's just easier not to believe. Because I don't want to be, at least I don't want to be a hypocrite. He's the one who's in control, no one else. Or at least his ever-shifting desires, which can be a very chaotic way to live. And once again, returning to what Tim Keller says in his book, The Reason for God, he says, sometimes people approach me and say, I really struggle with this aspect of Christian teaching. I like this part of Christian belief, but I don't think I can accept that part. I usually respond, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all he said. 
If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. And that's how our first hearers felt when they hear the news of Jesus resurrected. They knew that if it was true, it meant that they couldn't just living life, can't continue to live life as usual. Everything's going to change. But at the same time, there's no fear of a Roman soul, soul uh, uh, goodness gracious, no fear of a Roman sword, no fear of cancer, no fear of anything, because death no longer has the final word. And if we're honest, let's say you are in control. Which you is in control? Which you would you feel comfortable being in control? Would it be the five-year-old you? Knowing what you know now in life with the five-year-old you, would you feel free giving rain, free rain on the rest of your life with the five-year-old you? What about the teenager you? Would you feel comfortable knowing what you know now? I mean, five years ago. Think about that person and who you were then and how much your beliefs have changed and how much your perspective on life has changed. Would you feel comfortable giving the full reins of your life to that person? What about now? What about 10 years from now? Knowing how much we change as people, do you honestly feel comfortable giving full control to yourself? I don't think I do. <laughs> and the better question maybe we ask is, what are you so afraid of in his authority? If he promises our good, he brings healing, even though it may be painful at times. What are you so afraid of his authority? You know, we may have our doubts, but a theologian, Pascal, a few centuries ago, said this brilliant statement. He says, in faith, there is enough light for those who want to believe and enough shadows to blind those who don't. So ask yourself, do you even want to believe? Knowing this means that your life must change, knowing that you will stand before him accountable, the king of the universe, do you want to believe? But thankfully, willful disbelief is not the only option. Willful belief is our third option. What this means is we entrust our lives to the authority and we let, uh, of Jesus Christ and we let him reign over our lives, our families, our jobs, our communities. And finally, we can start to ask, what would it look like in your life to let him take control? What about that anxiety that, that weighs you down because you're constantly worried about keeping control of your environment, always keeping your ducks in a row? That way, I mean, it's so restless, isn't it? But to know that Christ is in control, to know that he is king, to know that he reigns, and ultimately he is seeking our good for those who are called according to his purpose, as Paul says in Romans 8. Let your anxiety rest in his control. Or maybe better yet, what do you need to let go of? What are you angry that you can't grab or that you will not say no to? You know, there's this great story of how an African tribe captures monkeys. What they, do, what they need is three things. Peanuts, a coconut, and some string. And what they do is they tie the coconut to a tree, and they sprinkle peanuts around the coconut, and they burrow a hole in the coconut, just big enough for the monkey to put his hand in. And they put some peanuts inside the coconut. 
So the tribesmen go, and it's within earshot of the tribe's uh, land. And the monkey comes, and he begins to eat some of the peanuts. And this is very delightful. This is good. And then he sees there are more peanuts inside of the coconut. So he puts his hand in, grabs the peanuts, and tries to pull them out, but he can't. His hand's stuck. And he will not let them go, no matter what. So he begins to yell and scream and get angry. And of course, the tribesmen hear the monkey going nuts. And so they come out with their spears. And no matter what, the monkey will not let go of the peanuts. He will not let go. He wants it so badly, it will cost him his very life. What do you need to let go of in order to gain life, to rest in the authority of Christ? You see, for the disciples, it meant gaining ridicule. It meant gaining imprisonment. It meant gaining torture. It meant gaining death. It doesn't mean life's going to be comfortable. Don't, don't hear this health and wealth gospel flowing. It's not comfortable to follow Jesus. He says, pick up your cross and follow me. This is his authority. But the great beauty is, is that on the other side of death, there is life eternal. The promise that supersedes our imagination, that then gives us peace that is incomprehensible, even now in the most catastrophic of events. You want to get rid of apathy in life? You want to stop just putting your hands in the air? Go to the one who has the authority to give you life and life abundant. The one who finally is able to give you zeal that you've lost over the years for living. And listen, when the Apostle Peter, when the Holy Spirit comes upon him after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, Christ has ascended into heaven and they have the promise that he will return one day and he sent his Holy Spirit to empower his people. And this is what Peter says, Men and women of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, remember we pointed to David in Matthew 1 and back in 2 Samuel 7, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us still today. They could go and travel and see the tomb. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to give him, or to him, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Boldness, proclamation, and if you read throughout the story of Acts, after Christ has risen, the church undergoes great turmoil and pain and persecution, but they continue on with the hope of Christ crucified and raised. And they experience the resurrected Christ in magnificent ways, and the Apostle Paul is a great example of this. But as we sit here, sometimes the steps towards willful belief are just insurmountable. Where do we begin? And there's two easy steps. Believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he is king, that he is in control and entrust yourself to the one 
who's conquered death. I don't care if you're new to the Christian faith and you have tons of questions, or whether you've been in the Christian faith for a long time and you're still wrestling through your questions. Jesus is the only one who has the right to rule your life. The only one. Not your guilt, not your shame, not your judgmental friends, not your overbearing boss. Jesus Christ. Many rulers will tell you how to live, but only one ruler has given his life for you that you might have life and life abundant. Not only told us how to live and how to flourish, but he gave his own life to show his great love for us, that we might be reconciled to God Almighty. In this life's battle for control, who's going to win your heart's devotion? It will be someone or something. Is that someone or someone worthy of your devotion? Why not make it the one who's conquered death? Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you this morning with songs of celebration, with confessions of joy, because Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. We have an option. We have various options as we come to this good news that has been attested by various witnesses that's changed the trajectory of history as we know it, as we look back upon how your church has impacted the world towards art and beauty and compassion, not perfectly, but striving to follow Christ our King. We long so desperately, Lord, to go back to the authority structure that you've designed us to flourish under. With you reigning and us submitting and celebrating the great joy of life as we are designed to live. So Lord, break through our, break through our stone hearts. Yes, may we wrestle through our doubts, but give us the desire for truth, not just selfish desires or longing to live in our own sin and ambitions. But may we long for you most of all. You are so patient with us and you are so kind and your love is so outlandish that God, you became flesh and died for us. May we never take that for granted and may we live in resurrection life today. Amen.